saving for a rainy day, but it's not even wet. Then there's food, some gas, and clothes. Don't forget the rent. Insurance pops up here and there. And don't forget to cut your hair. You need new shoes, but you got the blues because you just ran out of cash. Welcome to Sensible Chat, the podcast committed to helping you learn positive money mindsets, destroy debt, reduce financial stress, and break the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle. Our guest professor today is Ryan Sterling, author of You're Making Someone Else Rich. He's going to teach us how to fight the spending system and how gratitude can help us build wealth. After class, Sensible Bobby will share ideas for breaking big goals into small steps and catching snowflakes year-round. But first, she's going to talk about finding gratitude in a pandemic. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to her. The Siren of Savings. The Deer of Dough. Helping you budget your bottom line. Here is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. And thank you for joining me for another episode of Sensible Chat. I cannot believe we're only a few days away from Thanksgiving. This is going to be a tough one for a lot of people. We've faced unprecedented events in 2020 that could make it hard to answer the traditional Turkey Day question, what are you thankful for? But it's important that we stop and think about the answer. This year more than ever. If you can find gratitude during a pandemic, you can find it anytime. And as we'll learn later, gratitude can actually lead to wealth. So what are you thankful for? I'm thankful I've been able to work from home through this entire pandemic. I'm thankful that instead of my two-hour-per-day commute, I have time to exercise and have leisurely coffee dates on the couch with Scott every morning. We eat dinner together at a decent hour every night. I'm saving a ton of wear and tear on my car, not to mention gas money. My car will last much longer now that I'm not putting a ton of miles on it, and I don't miss the traffic one bit. Life seems to move so fast, but this year we've been forced to slow down, notice the little things, and take more time to experience and appreciate the little things rather than consume. At least that's how it's felt to me. At the beginning of 2020, Scott and I were excited that, for the first time, we'd been able to set aside enough money to buy tickets to a few different shows, a conference, and even a cruise for his birthday, all in the same year. It was a huge milestone for us but we ended up having to cancel all of it thanks to COVID. It was disappointing at first, but Scott was looking on the bright side and he got creative. When the market was crashing, we got a refund for our cruise and bought stock in the company instead. Dirt cheap. I am so thankful and so excited to report that the stock's doing very well. Right before the first lockdown, Scott was getting worried that supplies would be hard to find, so we stocked up on water and soup. Who knew they'd be hoarding toilet paper and sanitizer? I never thought I'd spend so much time driving from store to store, city to city, trying to find toilet paper. Finally, he got a great tip about a nearby janitorial supply store and came home with 96 rolls. Now, this may sound weird, but I have never felt so wealthy in my life. It was such a peaceful, calm feeling to know we were taken care of. No more stress. That is priceless. When we got wind that another lockdown was coming, we knew it was time to stock up again. And I got to tell you, it was the best feeling to be able to buy enough of everything we felt we needed to be prepared and not worry about what it would cost in the short term. 
We're certainly not made of money, but we've been saving. So when a situation like this comes up, we don't have to hold back and wait for more money, hoping certain supplies will still be available later. We can buy in bigger bulk than we typically would, wipe out the stress of dealing with shortages, and know that we'll still be able to eat and pay the bills. We may not have the money for everything that appeals to us on a daily basis, but having money for everything we need, feeling comforted, taken care of, and the fact that we're able to be together is enough. It's more than a lot of people have, and I feel wealthy. If there's something I truly want, it's worth saving for, planning for, and it's almost more fun not to get it right away because I get to think about it and look forward to it while I'm saving and planning for it. I am thankful for my husband, our family and friends, and the foundation we've built together. What else do I need? Every cloud has a silver lining. So what are you thankful for? Why is it important to think this through? And how do we fight the many distractions that face us on a daily basis? I bet our guest professor can help answer some of those questions. Drop your iPhone and grab a seat because Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Ryan Sterling, author of You're Making Someone Else Rich. Ryan is founder and head wealth coach at Future You Wealth. He has over 15 years experience helping individuals and families achieve their financial goals in addition to teaching financial literacy courses in underserved communities. Ryan, thank you so much for being our guest professor today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love in the book how you define awareness, accountability, and action, because it's always amazing to me how we don't think about these things, but they're so impactful in our financial lives, in our lives in general, but especially in terms of our financial life. So let's go through them one by one, starting with awareness. How do you define awareness? Yeah, I mean, awareness is just having an understanding that the system is rigged against us. And what I mean by that is the job of any retailer, marketer, or venture capital firm that is backing a retailer or marketer is obviously to get you to spend as much money as possible. And the way they do this is they reduce the friction points between the customer and the sale. That is the holy grail of sales. Reduce the friction points. And it's interesting. I mean, I wrote this book because, I mean, this is largely the process I had to go through. And I mean, I have, you know, over 15 years of experience in wealth management working with clients. And I mean, I had a reckoning a couple of years ago where I was good at my job. I was making, for me, what was a record income. And I was as insecure financially as I'd ever been. And I realized, I look, I have all the credentials, the MBA, CFA, et cetera, and the experience. But I realized that, you know, building wealth and managing money is so much more than just the spreadsheets, the formulas, the projections. I mean, those are important, but that's just actually a small portion of it. I knew all that stuff and I was bad at my own personal wealth. So I realized that, wait a second, before I can really go down the path of building wealth for myself, I need to have an awareness of what are my triggers when it comes to consuming? Why is it so easy for retailers and marketers to get my money from me? And this awareness kind of led me to the fact that, wow, the friction points are gone today. 
And I think about there used to be natural friction points between us and spending our money. You had to go to a physical store location. You had to dig through inventory. You had to use cash. And here we are today. I talk to clients about this all the time. I mean, think about how many apps we have on our phone and how every retailer is encouraging you to, to use apps. This is intentionally designed. You know, you think about the friction points have been reduced over the years. It started with credit cards, easy pay solutions, online shopping. And again, today with the apps and the push notifications, you know, we're no longer saying, you know what, I think I really need a pair of shoes. We're being told, hey, you yeah. need these pair of shoes. So it started with awareness. Yeah. And the biggest thing that seems to be one of the biggest reasons why we all overspend, spend too much, don't save as much as we should, whatever, simply comes down to we're not paying attention. And that goes to this awareness point, right? That's exactly right. It's funny. I actually had someone reach out to me just completely cold, unsolicited, who read my book. And they said that after reading my book, they deleted all of their sneaker apps. And I was thinking about this and I was just like, wow, like I've never heard of a sneaker app, but it's one of those things where it's it's like this person, they have this app on their phone and, you know, this company who, again, created the app, they have all the data on this company. They know your consumption patterns. They know what you like. They know when you're most vulnerable and they know how to get you. They know how to push the ad at you or the deal at the right time to get you to spend. This is an intentionally designed system, which we need to use intention to fight back against. And again, it starts with the awareness that this system, that the reduction of friction points, that this is all intentionally designed to get you to spend more than you need to. And so once we have this awareness, now we have to move on to accountability. So let's define accountability. Yeah. So I think accountability to go through the round trip in the book, it's, it's starting with answering the question, what do you want? But I add two constraints. Your wants can't be more money and they can't be material things. So really, what do you want at the core of you? And I tell you, when my clients go through this, it's usually some sort of combination of they want better relationships, closer connections. They want more freedom. They want more agency over their life. They want to own life on their terms. And really kind of thinking about, okay, let's first ask the question and answer the question, what do you want? And now let's really think about, are you designing a life that gets you closer to satisfying these deep wants at the core of who you are. So it starts there, but then the whole section ends with the, okay, it's not about what you want. I mean, it starts with asking and answering that question, but now it's what are you willing to commit to? So those are the bookends of that section. And then we fill it in with the process of how to hold yourself more accountable. Right. And that goes to the action part of it, right? Exactly. So, you know, we have the awareness. Okay. Now we have the accountability. We know what we want. We know the life we want to design. Now, what are we willing to commit to? And then the last part's taking action because it's great to define what you want. It's great to then have a set of commitments, but it really means nothing if you're not willing to take action. And it doesn't need to be heroic action. It just needs to be better than what you were doing. It needs to be moving in the right direction. And this is the most important part of it. I mean, they're all very important, but I think this is what gets lost a lot of times, because like you said, I mean, determining, you know, what you want doesn't mean anything until you go after it. And I think that's the part that, you know, when you hear motivational speakers talk about hope and you can do it and all this kind of cheerleading, but there's never any action plan. That's what's missing. You need the action plan. That's 100% right. That was one of those. It's funny. I mean, I do like the self-help category of books and I've 
consumed a lot of them myself. And I'd say my biggest issue is you read them and you feel great. And then two weeks go by and then it's all gone. Right. And the point of this book is to say, okay, it's going to get you really excited about the process that you can build wealth, but you have to take action. And if you don't take action, then you're wasting your time. Definitely. And so in the book, you actually talk about how you believe that action leads to freedom. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, I I think it's about getting you closer to your best, most intentional life. And the only way you're going to create financial independence, financial freedom, personal freedom, the only way you're going to start to get excited about the process of anything is taking action and moving in that direction. And I think it's one of those where when people are in a state of unrest, when they're in a state of anxiety, it's so much about focusing on the future and feeling a lack of control or a lack of clarity. And when you can actually start to define what you want and then start taking action on it, it really eases that unrest and anxiety. And it gives you more of an inner sense of freedom because now you're seeing results. Now you're actually taking action and moving in the direction of the life that you want to design for yourself. So I firmly believe that the path to easing the unrest, the anxiety, the uncertainty is by taking small steps forward. And that ultimately leads to interpersonal freedom. I totally agree with you. That is what I felt on my journey towards being debt free. Because in the beginning, I mean, before I started, I felt like it was hopeless. And that's why I Mm -hmm. hadn't done anything about it. And as soon as I found the hope, the hope came from the math, which Mm -hmm. showed me unequivocally. I mean, you can't deny the numbers. They don't lie. And so when you put a plan in place, you can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. And when you're moving towards it, man, you're hitting these goals, even though I didn't, it would have been better if I had set little goals to hit. But even though I didn't, they just kind of came to me because I could see the numbers dwindling and I knew the date when it was going to be all gone. So that was a huge motivational part of it. A hundred percent. I mean, here's the thing. This is in the book and I talk to clients about this. The thing I tell people is the problem I solve in the world is unrest. And, you know, I think about the people that come to me in a state of unrest and specifically financial unrest. And it's one of those where, you know, people come to me and say, I'm in major credit card debt. Well, how much credit card debt? Well, I, I don't know. Okay, let's put it on a piece of paper. I don't want to put it on a piece of paper. Why? I don't, I don't want to see it. And then you see it and, you know, let's say it's $30,000 in credit card debt. That's really scary. It feels scary. Yeah. But once you can actually see it on paper, and then after a couple of months, you go from $30,000 to $28,000 in credit card debt, you knew it was there the whole time. You right. just didn't want to address it. And now you're addressing it. You're looking under the bed. You're seeing, okay, there is no boogeyman under the bed. Okay, now I can actually start taking the steps. And now you're making progress. So now it's something that's not scary. Now it's a fun challenge. Yeah, it was. And it's so doable. You know, totally. it's very exciting. And that goes to this statement in your book that I love that I think is really important important. It says building wealth is not an event and it's not about some magic number. It's a personal, ongoing, dynamic and ever evolving process. Mm -hmm. And that says to me just what we've been talking about, that it's not about the destination as much as the journey. Mm -hmm. Is that what you meant? 
That's a hundred percent what I mean. I mean, I feel like a big mistake people made. It's funny actually, because I had a client reach out to me today on this. And I, I feel like people all the time come to me and say, what number do I need saved for retirement? Or what number should I be at right now? And my answer is like, there's no should. There's no, like, if you're there, then you've made it. It's one of those where this is a constant process. And it's one of those where it's easy. I mean, it's like dieting. I mean, if you're looking to get physically fit, and you hit the point that you feel happy about, well, that's not then an invitation to go back to your old ways, right? right? It's something that needs to be maintained. And that's the same thing with building wealth. You have to be committed to the process for the long term. And again, not just be fixated on a number, be fixated on really enjoying the process and embodying the identity of somebody who is good with money and who wants to build wealth. That's such an important part of it. And going back a little bit to what we were talking about in the beginning about how all of the marketing is really designed to make us unintentional with our money and not paying attention, the urge to consume is what puts so many of us into devastating debt. And you actually have some helpful tips and tricks to help fight back against the urge to consume in your book. Will you share some of those? Yeah, for sure. So these have been super helpful for me. So number one is to reduce the distance to your wealth goals. So much of what I hear today is, what's my magic number for retirement? Do I need 3 million, 4 million, 5 million? And number one, it all depends on who you are, your lifestyle, et cetera. But when people, let's say you're in your mid thirties, mid forties, mid fifties, I don't care. And you're thinking, okay, I need $3 million saved in X number of years. That seems abstract, right? I mean, it seems so far away. The numbers feel so big, but here's the thing. I, I don't have the exact math in front of me, but like, let's say a listener is in their mid thirties and they've neglected putting away money up to this point, and they feel like their magic number is three or $4 million. That really comes down to putting away like $1,000 or so a month, probably a little bit more than that. Let's say it's 2000, but between maxing out a 401k, a 401k match, and then maybe putting a little extra on the side, it's actually very achievable. So I tell people, instead of focusing on the destination, let's break it down to short-term achievable goals. Can you max out your 401k? Can you at least get up to your employer match? Can you pay off a little bit of credit card debt. Because the problem is this, if the goal's too far away and it feels too abstract, when you have a choice of buying a pair of shoes that are right in front of you or that you just received a push notification for, yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you can see the shoes, you can picture yourself wearing them, you can derive benefit from them today. When you have a choice between that or putting money away from retirement, there's just no way you're going to put the money towards retirement. Again, it's too abstract. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't touch it where this alternative is right in front of you. So instead of saying, again, I need to have X number in the future, focus on, hey, I want to save a hundred extra dollars by the end of the month. I want to max out my 401k. I want to get up to the employer match. I want to pay off a thousand dollars of my credit card balance, shorten the distance and then celebrate the success. So that's number one, shorten the distance to your wealth goals and have fun with it make them short-term and make them achievable. Number two is to alter your environment. And my favorite way to alter your environment is, you probably hear this often, is the pay yourself first. Yeah. And it's what we do in our 401k, but you can do it outside of your 401k. So when you get paid, have a set amount go right to your savings account or right to your brokerage account and invest it right away. Don't let it hit your checking account. Get it out of sight out of mind, because when it's out of sight, out of mind, you're less prone to spend it. So that's number one with altering your environment. 
Number two is as simple as deleting some of your apps. There was a time in your life where your life was just fine without the apps and will be just fine after the apps. (laughs) (laughs) So I think if it's one of those where if you are constantly suckered into the deal of the day, the deal of the week, and it's through these push notifications, just delete the apps, just alter your environment, get them off your phone. And then number three, I'd say is define what you want and really think about, again, with those constraints, your wants can't be more money. They can't be material things. So what does your best life look like? Think about your best day. And if you need to put together a vision board, have some sort of reminders of what that looks like. Because once you can define what you want and what your best life looks like, what your best day looks like, now you can ask yourself the question when you're ready to consume, is this getting me closer to my best, most intentional life? Or is it taking me away from it? And I think the last thing with that is just give yourself a space, create just a little bit of space between impulse and response. So I have clients where we set rules in place where if you are getting ready to shop online before checking out, step away for 15 minutes. So one of my clients steps away for an hour. And they have a rule in place. They create that space. And the reality of it is if you create that space, you'll realize after some time, actually, I don't really need that. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? I know I've had people who said, yeah, they walk around a store for a little while. And by the time they're done walking around the store and actually get in line, they've managed to talk themselves out of most of what's in their carts. hundred percent. If you give yourself again, if you're ready to, oh, here's the push notification. Yep. I'm ready to check out. Okay. You know what? I'm going to give myself an hour. A lot can happen in an hour. (laughs) And the next thing you know, (laughs) you completely forgotten about it. And you think about how that can compound over a month or over a year. It can really add up over time. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is, is that, you know, I feel like there's so many times that we feel pushed by other people to spend money, some salesman, either Mm -hmm. in our face or on TV saying, oh, this deal is, you have to take advantage of it now, 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 now. And I'm thinking, don't ever let anyone else push you or bully you into how you're going to spend your money. For God's sake, you worked hard for it. You're the one who should determine how to spend it. If somebody's pressuring you, back off. You know, there's no reason you have to take that. I 100% agree. 100%. And look, the reality of it is, and I don't know all the listeners, obviously, so bear with me here, but I would venture to guess that most of the people listening to this podcast have way more than they actually need. Yeah. And I think that a lot of them probably don't even feel it, but they do, you know, Mm -hmm. because when I actually sat down and looked at my debt, it was amazing to me how I had felt so dire about my situation for so long. And it really, when you looked at all of it together, it wasn't as dire as I had built it up in my head to be. And that's an amazing thing because, you know, that gives you hope too when you can see, wow, this actually is doable. It's not something that I cannot do. Yes, I have to make changes, but it's absolutely doable. I was talking to a client this past week who has credit card issues and he was telling me, he's like, oh gosh, he's like, I really needed to buy this egg sandwich maker. I like egg sandwiches and it just, it makes it so much easier. And it's like, people have lived for centuries (laughs) without this and they're fine. (laughs) So let's say you you don't need it. You wanted it. (laughs) Absolutely. It's all about the priorities and that can be a hard thing. And that's why the why is important. And like you said, the things that are not about money, but the things that really make your life more enjoyable, more fulfilled. That's right. I tell people all the time, and I want to make this clear, this book and, you know, my engagement with clients, it's not about 
saying no. And it's not about being restrictive and constraining. It's about saying yes to the things that get you closer to your best life and no to the things that don't. And along that line, you talk about the benefits of pain in this book, which I thought was Mm -hmm. really interesting and super important because the pain that comes from making difficult changes with respect to money is what holds a lot of us back from getting out of debt or building wealth because we don't want to feel that pain. But there are a lot of benefits on the other side. So explain the benefits of pain. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, it sounds crazy when I say it, but it makes so much sense if you think about it. We are hardwired as humans to pursue pleasure, avoid pain, and conserve energy. I mean, this goes back centuries of our DNA. The thing is, though, we're now in a society where the threats that existed thousands of years before with our ancestors, they just don't exist anymore. And the supply chain, the way we consume has been set up in a way to tug on those innate instincts, again, to pursue pleasure, avoid pain, and to conserve energy. And I mean, that's how we get to where we are today, where again, you can get an alert on your watch, press one button on your phone, and you can have anything you want, food, clothes, gadgets, accessories, anything delivered potentially even an hour later or 15 minutes later. And it's one of those where you think about everything about our society today is about convenience. You know, the things being easier to consume, really any experience, the pain is completely gone. And if you think about the way that a typical person in our society lives, they wake up, they have some sort of sugary snack for breakfast, right? right? Which which activates the pleasure sensors, right? We like pleasure. Then they get in the car and we sit in a car for an hour on the way to work. And then we go to work, we take an elevator to our desk, we sit at a desk for most of the day, and then we might have something delivered to our dusty lunch. Then we take the elevator back down. We sit in our car for another hour. We go home. We have a dinner. By the way, the food we're eating along the way, you look at any office pantry, it's all sugary snacks that again, activate the pleasure sensors. And then we go home and we eat dinner and then we sit down. I mean, life is pretty pleasurable and it's rigged to act on those instincts. So what I tell people is, you know what? I think we need a little bit more pain in our life. You know, Pain brings about growth. And you think about kids. I mean, the process of growing up is a constant process of exploring new things, opening yourself up, you know, experiencing bouts of personal growth, also sometimes setbacks. And as adults, I feel like it's so easy for us to lose that. And again, that's then where we get caught in this cycle of pleasurable consumption. And it's funny when, when I talk to clients about this and when I've gone through this myself, I know for my journey, I'll just tell you, because again, this book was very much my process. I signed up for a marathon and I said, I need to do something really hard that's painful where there's a process associated with it. And the marathon for me, number one, it was so much fun to do because I was pushing myself. I mean, the first time I ran seven miles and then I ran 10 miles and then I blew my mind when I ran a half marathon and did 15 miles. I mean, you get this personal growth, you feel so good. And then I noticed when I had this feeling inside of me that felt so good, I didn't want to consume as much. Like I wasn't really interested in getting new gadgets or new clothes. And I started to realize that the amount of abundance I had 
from just being out there with a pair of shoes running on a beautiful day, nothing else consuming wise could replace that. So I think about other people that I know, I've had someone that joined a community theater and they loved the arts as kids. And this is someone who's a lawyer and they just lost touch with personal growth. They were again in the nine to five grind and signing up to be a part of a community play really got him excited. And then once again, he didn't feel the need to consume stuff anymore because he was so fulfilled on the inside. I've had other clients that again, have taken on, again, some sort of personal growth journey where they've had to get reconnected to some sort of pain and personal growth. And every single time it results in feeling less of a need to consume. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, when you were talking about kids and the way they learn in the book, that really got to me because, yeah, as kids, we're so inquisitive and Mm -hmm. we're so willing to take chances and risk the pain of falling down while we're learning to walk. I mean, you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, learn to walk until you fall (laughs) down a couple of times. And, and, And as we grow, we just kind of get into a rut of life and we stop learning and finding new things. And I think consumption is, it's kind of a way to mask that. And we think it's making us happy, but a lot of times we find out it's really not. And yeah. so that goes right into a great quote from your book, which is, if you can't be thankful for everything you have right now, nothing will ever be enough. That is so powerful to me. So let's talk about why gratitude is such an important part of building wealth. I mean, it goes back to, again, the brand messages and the way that the whole system is rigged against us. We are constantly being told that we've lost out on something or about to lose out on something or that we have less than others. Think about every brand message out there. It's one of those two. Hey, you're losing out. The sale's going away soon. You have to act now. Or you're the cool mom or dad if your kids have X. Or, Or, you know, if you don't have this handbag or these pair of shoes or this watch that you're not part of the in crowd. I mean, it's constant, right? And the triggers that we have inside of us of the scarcity of not having as much or losing out on something, those are real powerful emotions. I know that I fall victim to that all the time. And it's one of those where the only way out of it is gratitude. And yes, I know things aren't perfect today. And I know especially that we're in this contentious political environments. And you know, the news is the whole saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. We're constantly being told that the world has never been this bad. Yeah, there are a lot of challenges, but the world's never been this great. I mean, people are living longer. There are more people coming out of poverty every single day. And I know this is very specific. So you know, someone might be listening where they're going through some sort of personal crisis. And I totally get that. And I have great empathy for that. But it's one of those where just on a whole level, like we are living in an amazing time today. And again, not perfect, but it's amazing. And it, the reality of it is we have so much more than we need. That's definitely true. And you're right. I mean, there are a lot of people who are going through devastating things right now. But for a lot of others, things aren't so devastating. And I think no matter where you are, you have to find the silver lining in everything. Because if you can't see the good just in, you know, waking up to a new day Mm -hmm. and the possibilities that exist with that, I mean, there's a lot going on that can really break you down. But if you can just hold on to one good thing, even in 
a day, that's going to boost you to hopefully get to the next good thing and make things better because it all comes down to us, right? I mean, whatever's going on out there in the world today, how it impacts our life, we're the only ones who ultimately have control over that. That's right. That's right. And here's the thing. I mean, I write this in the book. I mean, you can be in paradise while waiting for a delayed flight, while rationalizing with a screaming child. You can be in paradise if you think about and put yourself in in a place of gratitude. I, I had a situation a couple of years ago where I was upset about a delayed flight. And then I just sat there and realized it was actually a business trip. And it was funny. I thought about years earlier how badly, like when I was in college, for example, how badly I wanted to be working finance, how badly I wanted to go on a business trip and be one of these people. And here I am, I am one of these people and I'm pissed off about a delayed flight. And it was one of those moments where I changed my mindset to extreme gratitude. And I said, you know what? I'm not a business person now who's flying to see clients. Like, this is what you wanted. Like, it's amazing. You know, I, I talk to people who, you know, they're three-year-olds acting up. And it's like, well, think about how badly you wanted a child. And right. here's your three-year-old. And they're throwing it, but they're the cutest little thing. <laughs> at the same time, I've been at five-star resorts, perfect setting, amazing pool, ocean in the background, could not be nicer. And I've been around people who are losing their mind because they wanted an orange, not a lime in their margarita. So, I mean, like, wow. you can be in paradise in the tiniest things and you can be in your own prison at a five-star resort. So that's why I talk about like, if you can't live in gratitude of what you have right now, nothing will ever be enough. Definitely. So let's talk about fairness because I thought this was a really, really important thing in the book, something that I've thought a lot about and I'm really glad that you pointed it out in the book. So this is what you state. We can all point to unfairness and we can all be pointed to. Tell me what you mean by that and why thinking about the idea of fairness is important. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was out with a friend yesterday. We were on a run. Great guy. And, you know, we're in New York City and you're around billionaires in New York City and billionaires and kids of billionaires. And he was telling me, he's like, man, it's just like so unfair how just some people are just born into these families. And I told him right to his face. I'm like, look, you're someone who was born in an upper middle class suburb of New York City with two parents at home who are both college educated. Your college was completely paid for. You went to graduate school at one of the top graduate schools in the country, actually in the world. And this is someone who's making a six figure income. And I looked at him and said, dude, Right. <laughs> like, come on, man. You, you want to talk about fairness, man? There are a lot of people that can be pointing right to you, brother. And it's so easy to get, and I guess this goes back to gratitude. It's so easy to think about, oh, it's so unfair. Look, look at this person they were born into. Their parents are billionaires. Or look at that person. You know, They were born with X. They have this. They have X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. And number one, you don't know what they're going through. Right. I've been in the wealth management business for a while. I've worked with some billionaires families. I went and trade places with, with them in a heartbeat. And I, I'm happy to talk about that at some point. The thing though about fairness is that this is the data. If you make $32,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income globally. And it's amazing to think again, how again, most people listening to this right now, they live a charm. I know right now might not seem like a charmed life, but you are living a very good life if you look across global standards. And it's one of those things where if you want to talk about fairness, you need to take a look in the mirror because what you've been given, it might not be perfect, but you're probably holding a better stack than most. Thank you. 
because it's very frustrating for me to hear about that because I bought into that for so many years. And now the only thing that I can think when I hear that is keep your eye on your own paper because you don't know what's going on with somebody. You don't know what their actual lifestyle is like. You're seeing one piece of a big picture and the same goes for you. People are looking at you and only seeing one piece of your big picture. And there's a lot of people that have way more money than me that I would not trade places with in a heartbeat. And, you know, there are people with less than there's always going to be somebody with more or less than you. The financial part of it doesn't mean anything. I mean, what's life supposed to be about? You know, we weren't put here to struggle and we weren't. I mean, you want to have your best life, right? So no matter what that means, money is a tool. It's one resource, but Mm -hmm. it's not the only thing that means anything. So I think our focus really needs to change. And if we can stop focusing on what's fair and what's not fair and focus on what we can do to get to where we want to be, that's a much better goal, I think. Yeah. Years ago, I worked at a firm that worked with the average client was $100 million. So we worked with some pretty wealthy families. That's not what I'm doing now, but this is a, <laughs> a, 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 a short stint of my career. A great firm, by the way. But anyway, there's this one client of ours who's from a, a billion-dollar family. And he was mid-50s, never had to work ever in his life. He had multiple homes. He had Ferraris. He had a private jet. I mean, everything imaginable. And he was a really unsettled guy. And you could tell he there was a good person at the core, but he was just, he was really mean. So we're in this meeting. Again, this guy is from a billion dollar family, has everything imaginable. And I'm in credit card debt at this point. And so he and I are sitting across from each other. And he asked me about my experience going from business school to, uh, I used to work at Goldman Sachs. So he was asking about my process of going from business school to Goldman Sachs and the interview process. And I was telling him about the on-campus recruiting. And then he's like, okay. And then someone, you had to go through a first interview. I said, yes. And he goes, okay, then you had a super day in New York. I said, yep. And because you're competing against other MBA students. I was like, yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of us. And, you know, they were building a class of 60 or so and super competitive. And he was talking about the summer internship and the stuff we had to do. I mean, he knew everything. He knew the whole process. And I ended up getting the offer. And one thing he said to me, he goes, he slams his, his hand down on the, the table and he goes, that is something I will never have. I will never know what it's like to have to put myself out there, to have to fight against other MBA students, to have to fight for my spot in this coveted internship and then in this coveted position. And he goes, I would have loved to have had to experience that. Wow. And it was one of those moments where it's like, this guy has everything, but I have the one thing he doesn't have and can't have. And that's the power of the struggle and to know what it's like to dig down deep and to fight for a goal that you have. And I was in credit card debt at the time. And to think about, I had so much more than this guy had was a really powerful moment. That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I, I'm a budgeting geek, and so a lot of my podcast focuses on budgeting. And so I loved in the book how you wrote about having a daily budgeting practice that allows you to control your finances from a position of strength. What mm-hmm. does that mean to you? Tell me why you feel that way. 
because I'm in control of it. I know where my money is going and I'm not getting to the end of the month anymore. So I used to be the type of person that gets to the end of the month and I'd say, where did all my money go? Right. Like, how did I just get a raise? And my credit card debt's getting bigger. Like, how is this happening? And when I flipped the script and I finally, I started really getting connected to my money and really focusing on where my money was going in real time. And again, this wasn't to be a miser. This wasn't to penny pinch everything, but it was just having an awareness of where my money is going. And I realized that I could now operate from a position of power because I was in control and dictating how I was using this amazing resource. And it wasn't like society was telling me what I need to be buying. Yeah. And that's so important because a lot of times people don't want to budget because they feel it's restrictive. And really, that goes a long way towards what I always try to tell people that it's it's not about restricting. It's about spending the way you actually want to, but just spending from an intentional place. And like you said, definitely a position of strength, because now you've got all the information in front of you and you can tackle whatever comes your way in the way you truly want to. And then there's the part in the book where you talk about turning your budget into a value statement, which is super important because if you can do that, then you're going to see what a blessing a budget can be. So how do you turn your budget into a value statement? Yeah, it goes back to designing your best life. And that way, then you can say, okay, money is a resource. Money is a tool. And ultimately, it should be a tool to get us to our best, most intentional life, to ultimately be able to design your perfect day and live in your perfect day. Now, your perfect day doesn't mean it's always roses and puppy dogs, but you're structuring (laughs) it in a way that is, again, in alignment with your goals, your values, et cetera. So the reason I call it a value statement is I say, well, wait a second, this is a really important resource, a resource that I trade my time for. I should use it in a way that's in alignment with my wants and my values. So that's where, again, being able to track expenses and to say, wait a second, is this getting me closer to my best life or is it taking me away from it? And when I finally got to that point of saying, okay, some things you just have to spend money on because you have to spend money on it. I totally get it. And it might not necessarily get you to your best life, but sometimes you just have to. But when you can skew that dynamic where it's your money is going towards things that are getting you somewhere, not taking you away, that's a value statement. That's not a budget. That's not constraining. That's empowering. You have some great accountability exercises at the end of the book. And I love that you put this in because not only did you go through mindsets and actually action steps, but then you give people an opportunity to actually write down those steps that they want to go through. So tell us about the accountability exercises at the end of the book. Yep. So this is all from the accountability section of the book. So we're going through it. You're feeling good about yourself. You're again, awareness, accountability, action. And now the last part here, these exercises are to really start documenting then and to start holding yourself accountable. So number one starts with what do you want? And it starts by going through the framework that I go through where it's okay. What do I want? It can't be more money. It can't be material things. Okay. What needs to happen to satisfy this want? Am I fulfilling any parts of this want? What is getting in my way? Why am I letting it? Are the roadblocks insurmountable? If not, how can I navigate around them? What will life look like if I do nothing? And then if I work towards this want, how will I feel? So I do this with all of my wants. And it really helps me get clarity on what do I want and what do I need to do? And how do I need to structure my life 
to fulfill these wants. The next one's called the detachment framework. And you think about the attachments that we have in modern day society, the attachments to identity, the attachments to our stuff, the attachments to our career, the attachments to fairness, whatever it may be. And I go through a complete detachment framework that people can go through to help free themselves from the attachments that are holding them back. Another one is wealth on your terms. And it's thinking about defining wealth for you. And while money is a component of wealth, there are a lot of components of wealth. There's the wealth of time. How are you using your time? Are you using your time in the best way? Unconditional love. What's the wealth of love in your life? And can you have more of it? Knowledge. What can you do to start consuming more knowledge and be a wealth of knowledge? Adventure. There's a lot of wealth in the adventures we take. Are you taking any adventures? Are you taking any risks? Are, are you doing things that are exciting you? And then finally, health. You know, having money is nothing if we're not healthy and we're not feeling good. And then finally, the last part is what are you willing to commit to? So, what do you want? What vulnerabilities are you willing to embrace? What is the benchmark for your success? And why does committing to this want make you proud? So it's going through and it's giving a framework of the questions to ask yourself and then how to document. The book is called You're Making Other People Rich and so much great information in there, really food for thought. I mean, I really, it gave me a lot to think about, a lot to chew on and really different ways to look at your life which I think is really important, whether you're trying to make the best out of your money or just the best out of your life, because they go hand in hand. And mm -hmm. so this is really, really enlightening. So I really appreciate that you wrote this book and, and all the great ideas and information that you've shared with us. How can people get in touch with you and get the book? The best way to engage with me and my content is on my website. Just go to ryansterling.com. It's my full name, R-Y-A-N. S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G.com. There you have the book and, and every other thing that I offer and I do. Find me on LinkedIn. Find me at Ryan Sterling. That's probably where I'm most active. And then the book can be found, You're Making Other People Rich, can be found. I'd say the best place to get it is Amazon. Well, again, the book is called You're Making Other People Rich. And so go to Ryan's website and check that out. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. A big sensible thank you to Ryan Sterling, author of You're Making Someone Else Rich. Get the book and connect with him through his website at futureyouwealth.com. I love Ryan's book because it's enlightening and empowering, but it also gives you actionable steps you can take right now. Since we're talking about actionable steps, I want to talk about how to break big goals into small, achievable steps. Sometimes our goals look like Mount Everest, and we give up before we ever start. But do you know how people climb Mount Everest? One step at a time. So let's tackle our financial goals the same way. When I first became debt-free, I was elated. But I also felt a bit overwhelmed about reaching my next goal, which was to build a three- to six-month emergency fund. The debt snowball method was great for me because it allowed me to experience small wins on my way to the big win of becoming debt-free. But now, I was facing the daunting task of saving tens of thousands of dollars. It felt like it was going to take forever, and I could feel myself falling back into old spending patterns because it felt so far away. Then it hit me. Why not start with one month instead of three to six? And then I thought, why not one bill or expense for one month at a time? 
And why not start with my smallest bill or expense? How easy is that? My smallest is $14.99. I was easily able to put aside $14.99 to cover that expense for the following month. Success. Then I went to the next smallest. I kept going as far as I could with what I had available in that moment. And I got excited. This was doable. I couldn't get a month ahead on everything overnight, but I was already on my way and it motivated me to keep going. Then I started reading about snowflakes and that really got things moving. Most of what I'd read about snowflakes was more about financial windfalls like tax refunds, salary bonuses, inheritance, cash gifts, things like that. You use those things to beef up your debt payments or your emergency savings. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that these snowflakes are everywhere all year round. I started catching snowflakes in my utility bills. I always budget high for electricity, phone, and other bills that vary each month because I never want a bill that's more than I planned for. So anytime I'm under budget, I have snowflakes. These snowflakes were perfect for beefing up my emergency fund because I can move those extra dollars and cents to the category I'm working on. Let's say I'm trying to get a month ahead on my cable bill. My electric bill comes in $2 under budget and my gas bill comes in $5 under budget. That's $7 I can put towards next month's cable bill. My weekly grocery budget is $125, but I only spent $100. There's another $25 to put towards next month's cable bill. And on it goes. Once the cable bill is covered, move on to the next, until every bill and expense is covered for one month. Then move on to month number two and start the process over. Before you know it, you'll have your three to six month emergency fund. In the COVID world, I've caught a ton of snowflakes. My gasoline budget is almost all snowflake now because I barely drive. So I can use most of that money to beef up any category I choose. We've gotten three car insurance refunds in the last eight months. With that, I can choose to beef up a monthly category or put it into my car insurance fund for next year. So when it comes time, I can pay the entire premium up front. Anytime you save money on a purchase, the amount you saved is a snowflake. Use it as a small step toward your current financial goal. You'll be surprised at how many snowflakes you catch when you're looking and what a big difference they make when you put them all together. Snowflakes are a great way to break big goals into small achievable bites. But you've got to know what your goals are and take action to move that money accordingly. Otherwise, the snowflakes simply melt away. I'm thankful for the little things this year. And I'm thankful for the knowledge that small wins add up to big successes and that gratitude really does lead to wealth. So during your Thanksgiving celebration this year, take some time to really focus on what you're thankful for and how it can lead to a more fulfilled life going forward. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving. And until next time, remember, do the math, live the life. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sensible Chat. All the links and resources mentioned are in the show notes at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. To schedule your free budget consultation, click on the book a free call button in the upper right-hand corner at sensiblechat.com. Have a question or success story or how about a great budgeting idea? Sensible Bobby loves it all and wants to hear from you. Go to sensiblechat.com for all the contact information. That's sensible with a C. 